The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis 20, sorry, 32. We're going to be studying verses 1 to 32, so if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 27. Genesis 32, verses 1 to 32. George Matheson was only a teenager when he discovered that he was going blind. He was persistent, though, and so he pressed on in his studies and graduated from university. Uh, When he went on to study theology, Greek, and Hebrew, he was given help by his sisters to make it through those studies. The Lord blessed George with a fiancé. But as time went on, and as his eyesight grew worse, she broke the engagement. She struggled with the thought of being married to a man who was blind. And so George never married her or or anyone else. After being deserted by his fiancée, life went on for George. He had his sister by his side until she broke the news to him that she was engaged to be married. On the night before his sister's wedding, George was alone in his home and alone with his thoughts. And of that time he said this, quote, Something happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering." End quote. For a moment, George felt as though he was all alone. His fiancée had let go of his hand, and within hours his sister would let go of his hand too. It was in these moments where George felt as though every earthly comfort had let go of him that he wrote the following words. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. George Matheson, he went on to be a great pastor and hymn writer who knew what it meant to hold on to God. Holding on to God is the only appropriate response to the one who had first taken hold of you. And this morning as we turn to study Genesis 32, we see Jacob holding on to God. Jacob is continuing his journey to the promised land of Canaan. And while Jacob, in Genesis 31, said goodbye to one problem, Laban, he turns to face another, Esau. In Genesis 31, the chapter preceding ours, Jacob only escaped the anger of Laban because the Lord was on his side. And now he turns to face Esau. And remember, the the last time we saw Esau, Esau was red hot. Esau wanted to murder Jacob. Because Jacob had stolen his blessing. What is God teaching Jacob on this journey home to the promised land as he faces trouble after trouble? What is God teaching you on your journey home to the promised land of heaven as you face trouble after trouble? God is teaching Jacob to trust him. To depend upon Him. God is teaching Jacob that when every earthly support is removed, you hold on to God. And beloved, that is the sermon in a sentence. When everything and everyone you depend upon is removed, depend upon God. When everything and everyone you depend upon is removed, depend upon God. In our passage, Jacob depends upon his wisdom, his wiles, and his wealth. 
all of that is stripped away from him. And he's left alone with God. In a solitary wrestling match with God, he learns to humbly submit himself to God. Will you do the same? When every earthly blessing is given away or walks away, you hold on to the God for the blessing that can never be taken away. Life with Him. As one writer put it, when God is all you have, He is all you'll ever need. We'll consider our passage in two sections under two headings. In the first section, in Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 23, we see Jacob's fickle dependence. In the second, in Genesis 32, verses 24 to 32, we see Jacob come to full dependence on God. I believe you can find a a larger outline there provided in your bulletins. I hope that will help you follow along as we make our way through this text. But let's begin with our first point. Fickle dependence. Follow along as I read Genesis 32, just verses 1 to 8 for now. Genesis 32, verses 1 to 8. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. These verses, they introduce to us the initial tension of our chapter. Having just escaped the grasp of Laban, Jacob is heading into the clutches of Esau. And we see that he is depending upon his own wisdom here. You can see in verse 1, in God's immense kindness, God once again makes himself known to Jacob through the presence of his angels. This is significant. As he was leaving home, God's angels actually appeared to Jacob at Bethel, back in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. He was fleeing from Esau then, actually. God, he sent his angels to him there to, to comfort him. And here, God sends his angels to Jacob as he's returning home. The goal of that angelic appearance back in Genesis 28 was to assure Jacob that he would indeed receive God's covenant promises. That God would go with him and do good to him. And that God would bring him back. In Genesis chapter 28 verse 16, Jacob proclaimed that God was in this place. And Jacob effectively does the same thing here in verse 2. When he names the place Mahanaim, which literally means two camps. The most likely explanation for this name is that Jacob kind of sees his family camp and then he sees the reality that he's surrounded by an angelic camp. There were multiple angels at Bethel. There are multiple angels here. God's presence should bring God's peace to God's people. This angelic appearance should reassure Jacob as he returns home to face his brother Esau. Jacob should remember that God is with him and that he has nothing to fear. Jacob can trust God. 
Just as Psalm 34 verse 7 teaches us, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In verses 3 to 5, you see there that Jacob, he sends messengers ahead of him to greet Esau. He clearly has a, a goal of calming any remaining anger in Esau. Do you see there in verse 4 how he refers to Esau as my Lord and as himself as your humble servant or your servant Jacob? At one level, that's a, that's a humble posture that we should all take. But remember who Jacob is, right? This is coming from the man who was grasping at Esau's heel as he was coming out of his mother's womb. Jacob was always trying to get ahead of his brother Esau. Jacob bargained for Esau's birthright with a bowl of stew. Jacob preyed upon Esau's hunger and lack of self-control. Jacob, he deceived his father and stole Esau's blessing. He was a trickster, a deceiver, a grasper. Jacob, he tried to grasp God's promises by his own wiles and wit in the past. He trusted in himself and in his schemes instead of in God who had promised to bless him. Jacob was always trying to take the higher place. But here, he says he's willing to take the lower place. Are these, are these sincere words from a changed man? Or are they smooth words? The words of a schemer. Are his words matched by his works? Look at verse 5. Read verse 5 again. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Esau, I've got a bunch of stuff to share with you. Please receive me in peace. Now some think that this is genuine repentance from Jacob. For my part, I'm not so sure. Uh, there's, there's one thing that gives me pause at this point in the passage. In, in Jacob's message, you see there in verses 4 and 5, do you see any admission of having wronged his brother or deceived his father? When did Jacob say, Esau, I was wrong to steal your blessing and, and I want to return it. Would you please forgive me? Part of genuine repentance may include restoring what was lost, but part of genuine repentance certainly includes admission of guilt, of wrongdoing. And a request for forgiveness. I'm not sure we find that at this point in Jacob's words. One of the gifts that God's presence with God's people brings is a confident rest in His care. When, when you know that you're a recipient of God's forgiveness and favor, you can freely confess your sin to those that you've wronged. You can seek their forgiveness and favor and trust God if they choose not to extend it. Ask yourself, what happens next? With Esau. Will he forgive Jacob? Look again at verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. I mean, does, does Esau seem satisfied to you? What's the report that comes back to Jacob? It's basically this. So uh, we told Esau what you said, and he's coming with an army of 400 men. I mean, from the report Jacob receives, Esau doesn't seem to have forgotten or forgiven. And should we be surprised? I mean, what track record of trust has Jacob built up with Esau? Do you ever wonder whether the words of others who have crossed or double-crossed you in the past are sincere? Do you ever hesitate to trust them? I mean, can we really be surprised by Esau's Actions, given what we know of him, too. I mean, Jacob, he has tricked his brother Esau before. How can he be sure that he won't trick him again? 
Esau confessed, actually, in Genesis 27, verse 36, that this is Jacob's character. He is a trickster. He is a deceiver. He is one who grasps at everything, trying to take it from you. Trying to wrest the last drop of gain out of you. What evidence is there for Esau that Jacob has changed? There's not even much evidence for us. I mean, his last dealings with Laban were shady at best. When Jacob left, Esau wanted to kill him. When Jacob finally meets Esau, that desire, as we see in chapter 33, is actually gone. But Jacob doesn't know that yet. He won't know that until they meet in Genesis 33. And in Genesis chapter 33, verse 4, Esau, he runs to meet Jacob. He embraces Jacob. He falls on his neck and he kisses him and they weep together. It's a wonderfully moving scene of reconciliation. But we're not there yet. We have an army of 400 men coming. All Jacob knows is that Esau is coming with 400 men. And the last time we saw a group of men that size in the book of Genesis, it was Abraham gathering men to his side to go out to war. No, what, what this is clear to Jacob is that to have 400 men at your side makes you a man of consequence. And it gives him the impression that Esau is a man of conflict. Notice what happens to Jacob's heart there in verse 7. He becomes greatly afraid and distressed. In the words of Ed Welch, when people are big, God is small. God has gotten small to Jacob. I mean, Jacob immediately turns back to his cleverness and scheming, to his wisdom. Before he prays, he plans. Before he depends upon God, he depends upon his own wisdom. He divides his people into two camps, hoping that if Esau attacks one, the other will be able to escape. What is Jacob trusting in now? A scheme of splitting his camps in the desperate hope that one can escape. He's trusting in a scheme, not in the sovereign God. Not in the sovereign God who just appeared to him through angelic presence. I wonder, who or what are you trusting in? When conflict comes toward you, do you depend upon words to smooth things over? When conflict comes towards you, do you depend upon avoidance schemes or escape strategies? Fear is beginning to emerge in Jacob's heart. And where is he turning? Why is Jacob afraid? Angels of the living God have just appeared to him. God can bring his unseen army of angels to Jacob's side. God can confront Esau and stop him in his tracks. Remember, he just did that with Laban, the chapter before. God has promised Jacob that he will return him safely to the promised land. He has the word of the living God. Why should Jacob be afraid? Christian, why should you be afraid? Hasn't Jesus promised to be with you always? Even to the end of the age? Hasn't Jesus promised that He would bring you into His Father's house? Hasn't He promised you a glorified body and soul in the new Jerusalem? I wonder if what we're seeing in Jacob has ever happened to you. I mean, has the truth of God's presence and peace ever been brought home to your heart only for something kind of unexpected to happen? And so... Fear wells up within you. Have you ever forgotten that because of Jesus, you have the favor of God? And that it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And yet you still become anxious and afraid. Have you ever forgotten that your stand is biblical? 
That in standing on God's Word, you're standing actually on the right side of history. And yet you've become anxious and afraid. That's been true for me, even this past week. Like Jacob, our dependence on God is often fickle. Still, when fear wells up, you should do exactly what Jacob does here in verses 9 to 12. You should pray. You should pray and plead the promises of God. You should remember who God is, who you are, and what God has promised you. You should tell God your fears and ask Him to be faithful. That's what Jacob does. And I want you to see it. Follow along as I read his prayer in verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord Yahweh, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the first prayer we have from Jacob. Can you believe that? After all that he's been through in Genesis, this is the first prayer we have from Jacob. And I think it's actually the longest too. This is a prayer of faith. Now, maybe you find it strange that Jacob moves back and forth between fear and faith. But this is the common experience of the people of God, I think. We move back and forth between fear and faith. Growth in the Christian life is often like this. Moments of great fear, followed by moments of great faith, followed by moments of great fear. The process and progress of growth in godliness is not a straight line. It is a very squiggly line. Learn from Jacob. When your heart pounds with fear, pray to the faithful God. In prayer, Jacob remembers who God is. Yahweh is the God of his father and the God God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. In other words, he is the promise-making, promise-keeping God. Jacob even remembers God's promise to him when he prays, O Lord, O Lord Yahweh, you who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. God has committed himself to bring Jacob safely back to the promised land as a blessed man. Christian, when you are afraid, you must remember what God has commanded you and how he's committed himself to you. You can't let fear have the loudest word or the last word. You have to recall God's loving word to you. In prayer, it is important for you to remember who God is. It is also important for you to remember who you are. Do you see what Jacob recognizes about himself in light of who God is? In verse 10, he confesses that he is not worthy. He's undeserving. Undeserving of what? Undeserving of how God has shown his steadfast love and faithfulness to him. Jacob's heart should be filled with thanks. Because as an unworthy vessel, God has poured out his blessings upon him. Jacob only came across the Jordan with a staff. And now he's so large in number that he can actually split his people into two camps. God has abundantly blessed Jacob. 
And it is not because Jacob has been consistent in his love. He is not the consistent Christian. You realize that about yourself too, right? You don't receive God's grace because you've been faithful. You've been fickle. Even though we have been faithless, He has remained faithful. Jacob's prayer teaches us to remember who God is. And remember who we are. But it teaches us something else remarkable too. It teaches us that despite our fickleness, our wavering, we can tell God our fears and ask Him to do something about them. Do you you see Jacob tell God his fears there in verse 11? He is afraid of being attacked by Esau. And he asks God to be delivered from him. Tell God your fears. Don't let them eat you up. What, what does the great hymn say? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything. Everything, Christian. Everything to God in prayer. Tell God your fears. And then ask Him to do something about it. And do you see what Jacob asked God there in verse 12? He asked God to keep His covenant promises to him, to do him good. In other words, Jacob is saying, God, do what you said you would do. Do what you said you would do. That is not an irreverent prayer. That is a prayer that honors God. It says, I know and believe that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. So honor yourself. Show me and show the world your glory by keeping your promises. Beloved, if you are tempted to think, I can't pray like this, then you need to remember who Jacob is. A very sinful man with very serious flaws and very serious failures. Your flaws and your failures don't cut off your lifeline to God. They didn't cut off Jacob's lifeline to God. He prayed, and you should pray. You don't pray because you are righteous. You pray because God is righteous. You don't pray because you are strong. You pray because God is strong. You don't pray because you are full of faith. You pray because God is faithful. Christian, remember the crucified, buried, and risen Lord is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has opened access to the heavenly places by His blood for you. Even now, He intercedes for you. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Bring your burdens before the throne. Jacob, he offers this wonderful prayer, a prayer of faith, and then he sends presents on to Esau. In other words, Jacob went from depending on his wisdom to depending on God's word of promise and prayer to then depending upon his wealth. Jacob's dependence on God is fickle. Jacob hopes that he can pacify Esau by sending him these presents. We find this in verses 13 to 21. Follow along as I read Genesis 32, verses 13 to 21. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. And put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, 
To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. I think these verses are are pretty straightforward. We can clearly see what Jacob does. Jacob sends gifts. He sends presents to Esau. He sends 550 animals to Esau. There's a massive amount of wealth in that day. And most of the animals were female, which according to scholars were more valuable among the flocks and herds. And that's because they would bear offspring and multiply the numbers of the flock and thus increase the wealth of the owner. And notice how Jacob gives this present to Esau. Jacob sends these gifts in waves, right? One group comes, and then another group comes, and then another group comes, until finally they reach Esau, until all of them have reached Esau. Jacob is strategically trying to bowl Esau over with his generosity. He kind of is softening him up, right, to receive him at their meeting. Each servant is supposed to say, you know, Jacob's just right behind us. But what's next? Another gift. And another gift. When each messenger comes from Jacob, he speaks, they present Jacob, you see there again, as a servant, and Esau is honored as Lord. Jacob's again lowering himself and lifting up Esau. Now take a look at why Jacob sends these gifts there in verse 20. Do you see it? Pick up reading kind of in the middle of the verse. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Jacob, he wants to appease Esau. Some translations might render that word appease as pacify. Uh, In fact, the Hebrew word has connotations of making atonement. Jacob wants to assuage Esau's wrath, to turn it away, to cover it over with all these gifts. Notice, again, he doesn't ask for Esau's forgiveness. He's just hoping for Esau's acceptance. Jacob's depending upon this transfer of wealth to do the trick. He wants this appeasement, this atonement to lead to acceptance. Do you see that at the end of verse 20? Jacob is hiding behind these gifts, depending on them. But then he makes one last ditch effort. You see it there in verses 22 and 23? Read those verses. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob sends his wives and children on ahead of him, depending upon them to garner one final ounce of sympathy from Esau. Perhaps he thought, if Esau sees these women and children and how they depend upon me, he will accept me perhaps for their sake. Just a few moments ago, he was expressing to God his fears that Esau might harm the mothers and the children Every father's first impulse, every father's first impulse should be to go out in front of the family, 
to protect his wife and children, not to expose them to the anger of another man without being there to protect them. Every good man, every good man will suffer harm before he allows harm to befall women and children. Whatever the case may be for Jacob and his reasoning, every earthly blessing and support Jacob has known has now slipped out of his grasp. There's nothing and no one left to send. There's nothing and no one upon whom he can now depend except God. Do you see the first phrase of verse 24? And Jacob was left alone. It's a deliberate statement from Moses to help us recognize that he's all alone. There's nothing left for him to depend upon. He's totally vulnerable, ready to meet Esau. But what happens is that God meets him. God will now bring Jacob through the process of transforming him from one who deceives and depends upon others for his own gain and safety and security to one who depends upon God. He wrested blessing out of his hungry brother. He wrested blessing out of his blind father. He wrested blessing out of Laban by outwitting him. Instead of depending on his own wit and wisdom to wrest blessing out of others, he needed to depend upon God for blessing. We've seen Jacob's fickle dependence. He's vacillated back and forth between depending upon his wisdom and God's word. In the verses that close out the chapter, we see how God brings Jacob into full dependence. This is our second point, full dependence. Follow along now as I read verses 24 to 32. Verses 24 to 32. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob has been preparing to meet Esau, but God meets him. This isn't clear to us as readers right away. Jacob realizes it sometime during the wrestling match. That's why he starts asking for a blessing. He announces his realization. He's seen God there face to face in verse 30. Still notice in verse 24 there that Jacob wrestled with God all night until the breaking of the day. Jacob is experiencing what biblical scholars refer to as a theophany. A theophany is a physical, visible manifestation. Appearance of God to man. 
God is condescending to Jacob to bring him into deeper dependence in such a, a personal and close way. This is God's goal in meeting Jacob in the form of a man. But which person of the Godhead is, is wrestling, is Jacob wrestling with? Well, we don't ultimately know, but the, the general consensus of conservative scholars for, for a number of reasons is that Jacob is actually wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob is totally vulnerable. But remember who Jacob is. He, he's actually strong. Remember when Jacob saw Rachel, she was beautiful. He kind of wanted to impress her. He ripped that stone off of the well in Genesis 29.10. Or do you remember Jacob's own words in the last chapter, in Genesis 31, verses 30 to 40, when he talked about how he cared for Laban's flocks in physically harsh conditions, even in the midst of the heat by day and the cold by night. Jacob was a strong man, but God will make him weak. God will make Jacob weak in himself, but strong in the Lord. This is the transformation that Jacob needs to undergo. It may be the transformation that you need to undergo. Jacob has spent his whole life depending upon himself. But through weakness, he will be brought into the strength of depending upon the Lord. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was wrestling with a thorn in his flesh? He begged and begged God to remove it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul tells us what the Lord told him. The Lord told him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul didn't regret the Lord's decision to leave him weak. He rejoiced. He said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If Paul's weakness meant that the power of Jesus Christ was made all the more apparent in his life, then that's what he wanted. He wanted Jesus to be made apparent in his life and his power. Would you want that? Do you want that? Would you willingly accept weakness in this life? In perhaps a variety of forms. Would you willingly accept weakness in this life so that God's power might be made manifest in yours? That's a question to wrestle with because it may reveal whose glory you desire most, your own or God's. If you want glory, you're going to tend to res resist weakness. If you want God to be glorified, you will welcome the weakness He imposes upon you. And you'll depend upon Him to carry you through it. What happened with Paul? God making his power prominent. It, what happened to Paul is, is, is really what's happening with Jacob, right? God is making his power prominent in Jacob's weakness. God will make Jacob weak. So it might be plain to Jacob that God's promises come by his power. God's promises come not by his grasping, but by God's giving. No opposition. No 400-man army or angry brother or anyone will be able to stop God from keeping His promises. And God's people need to know this. Christian, you need to know this. So that you are not tempted to trust in your own cleverness or clout or capital, but in your covenant-keeping God. Jacob will enter the promised land of Canaan, not because his gifts appeased Esau, but because God kept his promise to return him to the land. God will not allow Jacob to boast in his diplomacy toward Esau, 
Jacob won't enter the land because of his clever words calling Esau Lord and himself servant. It's not the reason that Esau was won over. God will not allow Jacob to boast in the wealth that he gave to Esau. Jacob won't enter the land because he finally pacified Esau, but because God pacified Esau and preserved his promises. Now, I would not be surprised if if you have questions about how is it, right, that Jacob seems to be wrestling and prevailing in this match with God. I think one preacher might have uh, explained it well. His name was Sinclair Ferguson. He explained it through the lens of a father wrestling with his young son. He said something like this, When a father wrestles with his young son, he can hold him just tight enough that he's not hurting him. And he can maneuver in such a way in that wrestling match that he lets his son, from time to time, get the upper hand. That's happening, right? <laughs> um, right? And, and, and he, he doesn't break him, but he works with him, even teaching him how to wrestle with him, to know him, and to know the strength of his father. He's teaching him all along. And at a certain point, a father might say, Okay, son, it's time to go to dinner. Let's go up to the table. And the boy lets go of his dad, and the match is over. But if the boy says no, which happens from time to time, a a father, in his overpowering strength, may even gently remove his grasp and go sit down at the dinner table. I think something like that is going on here between God and Jacob. God is graciously condescending to Jacob, entering his earthly experience to teach him a lesson in a physical and palpable way. That holding on to God is his only hope. Jacob is learning that he has to hold on to God. And it is at this moment that God touches his hip socket. And Jacob's hip is put out of joint. I mean, notice how Moses characterizes it. He doesn't say he he punched his hip socket or ripped his hip socket. He simply touched it. And in verse 26, we're told that God... In this theophany says, let me go for the day is broken. The day is broken and Jacob's body is now broken. Here's the moment of truth. Has Jacob learned the lesson that God was trying to teach him? Is he going to give up trying to grab blessing from everything and everyone else but God? Is he going to hold on to God for his only hope of divine blessing? And he will. We see that there in verse 26. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. He he recognizes that he is not wrestling a mere mortal. And he, the inferior, asks the superior, the sovereign, for the blessing. Jacob is winning by losing. He is confessing that God is the source of sovereign blessing. Jacob has nothing left to give. Jacob is giving up his schemes for blessing in exchange for humbly seeking blessing from God. But notice in verse 27, there is an important confession that Jacob must make. Did you catch it? Did you see what it is? God asks him, what is your name? And when he says Jacob, he's confessing that he's a heel grabber. That he's a deceiver. A trickster. He's confessing his sinful character. And we know that this is a moment of humility for Jacob because of what we learned in another biblical text. So in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, tells us that Jacob strove with the angel of the Lord and prevailed. And then he tells us, he prevailed by weeping. By weeping. 
and seeking God's favor. Jacob wept in this wrestling match. God brought him to an end of himself. God brought him into a state of utter weakness and showed him that confessing his sinfulness and holding on to the Lord in faith was the only way to receive the greatest blessing. God Himself. A relationship with God Himself. Will you confess your own sinful character when God asks you your name? Will you confess your deceiving, your immorality, your pride, your independence? And will you hold on to God like this? When He strips away every support, family and finance, will you hold on to Him? When He removes every strength, including the strength of your body and mind, will you hold on to Him? You cannot save yourself. Only God can save you. Will you finally give yourself up to God and seek Him for blessing? This is where God transforms us and makes us new. And we see that when He gives Jacob a new name. That's a signal that He's making Jacob new. God changes His name like He changed Abraham and Sarah's name. Name changes in the Bible are often, they happen at significant moments. And this is a significant moment for Jacob. He changed from Jacob to Israel. And the, remember, the people of Israel are reading this book. They're those who are, like Jacob was, on their way home to the promised land. They're learning about how they got their name as a nation. And they're seeing that Jacob prevailed through humility and weakness and weeping and became Israel. Jacob, he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. And the nation must do the same thing. They must humble themselves under God and depend upon Him. Now this name, Israel, uh, in, in the Hebrew is a, is a play on the word for struggle. Israel literally means God struggles. But notice the man, or really the angel of God, tells us that it was Jacob who struggled with God and prevailed. As, as a nation, Israel, on their way home, the promised land of Canaan, they were just like Jacob. They even had to face Esau's angry descendants. Did you know that? They had to face the nation of Edom on their way home. And the lesson that they were learning from Jacob is that they would prevail by humbly holding on to their God and His promises. Christian, did you realize that you, Christian, you have been given a new name too? Do you, do you remember it? Do you remember when you were given a new name? It was during your baptism. When I perform baptisms, as most Christian pastors do, I always quote from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you submit your life to God in humble faith, holding on to Jesus for blessing of salvation, you receive a new name. You receive the name of the triune God. You receive the name Christian. This chapter... It closes out with another remarkable confession from Jacob. He has been preparing to meet Esau. He was fearing for his life, but do you see what he confesses there in verse 30? He confesses, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This tells us just how merciful God was to Jacob, or Israel, now. Later in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God will tell Moses, You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But Jacob has seen God face to face and lived to tell about it. And now he realizes that the greatest threat was not Esau, but God. You see, the reality is that Jacob had spent his whole life striving against God. 
His strife with Esau, his strife with his father Isaac, his strife with his father-in-law Laban was but a proxy war for his strife with God. He was trying to secure God's blessing through them and through his own strength and his own schemes. God's blessing will never come by human strength. It wasn't until Jacob came into came to God in humble submission, in weakness and tears, as Hosea 12:4 teaches us, that Jacob received the blessing. I wonder, is that true for you? Have you been striving against God? And, and has your war with Him played out in your battle with other people and problems that you're facing in life? With family, with friends, with classmates, or with co-workers, employers, or your spouse? Are you going to give yourself up to God? Has He brought you to a moment of total weakness and brokenness in order to deliver you, to transform you, and make you new in Jesus Christ? With tears, are you ready to confess that you've sinned against God? With humility, are you ready to say, God, like Jacob, I've been living my own way. Are are you ready to confess God's holiness and your unworthiness? Are you ready to beg God for the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ because He is ready to give it? Are you ready to give thanks to God with a humble heart that He sent His Son? Are you ready to rejoice that God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has lived the life that you have not lived, the life of humble obedience to God the Father? Jesus lived a sinless life, a righteous life, a perfect life for you. Are you ready to delight in the truth that Jesus died on the cross, bearing God's wrath against your sin, the full weight of of God's anger against your sin? Are you ready to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? If you are, you will be saved. You will be delivered from eternal death. To use the words of Jacob, your life will be delivered and on the last day, you will see God face to face in love. Friend, bring all of your striving against God to an end. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Turn from your sin and humbly confess your trust in Jesus, believing that He lived for you, that He died for you, and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, given this event here of Jacob's wrestling with God and God touching the socket of Jacob's hip, The people of Israel, they develop a new food tradition. You see that there in verse 32? They choose not to eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because God touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In the life of the people of Israel, they purpose to remember God's dealings with Jacob. They forced themselves to remember by the food that they ate or didn't eat, as the case may be, that they were in need of humility before God. They were weak. They were a weak people with a strong God. And through this practice, they reminded themselves that they needed to hold on to God and depend entirely upon Him to bring forth His blessings. And as we conclude, I hope that you can see the love of God in the limp of Jacob. In the lifelong limp of Jacob. Can you see God's grace to Jacob personally in this? What a glorious infirmity God has given him. Every step was a reminder of God's sovereign power and strength. Jacob didn't need the strength of his hip 
with the strength of heaven at his side. He could walk trusting in the Lord day by day. Daily he could remember this. God so loved me that he broke my pride and personally weakened me so that I might know his strength and blessing. I held on to him and he is holding on to me. I know that he will never let me go. So I will never let go of him. May that be your testimony. May you say, Jesus, I will hold on to you. You can discipline me in your love. I will hold on to you and not let you go. I will depend upon you. For your power will be made perfect in my weakness. I will hold on to you. Because in your grace you have taken hold of me. May that be your prayer. And may you walk depending on the Lord with whatever limp He gives to you. He can be trusted. And you can rest your full hope on Him. Let's pray for that grace now together. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from you. A word that exposes our sinful independence from you. Our trusting in our own schemes and stratagems. And yet a text that tells us that you love to wrestle with your people. And give them your strength in their weakness. Father, we pray and ask that you would keep what you promised. That you would not lose one of all that belong to you. Oh God, would you 